Hi, this is John Trope. You're listening to the Nashville Soul Music Podcast. Hi, this is Cowboy Keith, and you're listening to the Nashville Soul Music Podcast. Today, my guest is John Trope, celebrated jazz and funk guitarist. Let's uh, let's start at the top, John. Sure. Nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I want to point out that we are in a hotel in London after you played guitar for three nights at Ronnie Scott's with the original Blues Brothers Band. That is correct. Uh, is it fun? Oh, it's always fun working with these guys. It's great. We're a very uh, close-knit uh, bunch of guys. How long have you played with the original Blues Brothers? Uh, let's see. I've been with them steady since nineteen uh, since uh, 2001. Since 2001. Yeah. All right, let's start at the beginning. Sure. Where were you born? I was born in New York City, actually Chinatown, New York City, downtown, in uh, 1946. And were you raised in that part of town, or did you move around? Or No, I, actually we, my family moved to New Jersey, right just across the George Washington Bridge in Fort Lee, uh, when I was six months old. So you went to school in Fort Lee, right. all the way through high school? Fort Lee High, right to 12, through 12. Through 12. Did you play any musical instruments in high school? Oh, yes. I, well, I played guitar starting from around 11 years old. 11 years old. Did you play any band instruments? Were you in the marching band or jazz? No, it's not Just really. always guitar? It was always guitar. That's great. Okay, so you graduated from Fort Lee High School. Right. And uh, did you go on to pursue education in music outside of high school? Oh, yes. I, went to, uh, I immediately went to Berkeley School of Music in Boston. And I, uh, I, I originally went for a... Uh, Teacher's degree, which they that's what kind of kept that would keep you out of the draft at the point at that point. And uh, of course, I didn't believe in war, so that's what I did. Although I didn't have any intention of being a teacher, and I never finished four years there, I finished in my third semester, my, my third year, my fifth semester, and came back, came back to New York and pursued a career doing studio work. and. Uh, did a couple of shows too while I was getting started. Shows meaning uh, like Broadway shows. Well, well I actually, well, pit, pit my, band stuff. Yeah, right? my first show was an off-Broadway show, "Do Your Own Thing" with uh, Sandy Duncan. Sandy Duncan. And I wound up uh, working my way up to conductor. Did she have the glass eye then? No, that was before. Before the that glass before. eye. In fact, it was with Sandy Duncan and Bruce Scott, which at the time was her husband. Wow. And, uh, okay, so you went to uh, it was Berkeley in Boston, right? Right. You, did you do you think that education in at Berkeley helped you at all in the music business side of things? Is beyond the uh, the theory and playing and 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 the uh, the rigors they put you through to to get a music degree? Well, it's funny when I what, what I learned at Berkeley was a kind of orchestration and big band writing and stuff like that basics of of music because in those days it was still a lot of big band stuff and. Uh, but what really I got out of being in Boston was I, I, from, the min, from the first time I got up there, I was playing almost every week, seven nights a week with an R&B band. Wow. I, so you I, were gigging through college. I was gigging because I, I knew all the top 40 songs, James Brown stuff and uh, Cropper stuff, you know, <laughs> Soul Man, Doc of the Bay. And I was actually gigging with the teachers because they knew I knew, uh, I, you know, I knew that aspect of it. I, I wasn't doing jazz gigs. I was doing R&B gigs, R&B and uh, I would work with Amacrami, John Amacrami was uh, my good buddy up there, we would do a lot of trio gigs together, he was more of a jazz player, I was more of an R&B player, we had some good times together. Excellent, so 
what, when you got back down to New York, you're, you're playing in shows. You played in the show with Sandy Duncan, pre-Glass Eye, as we discussed. Right. And uh, what what was your toe into the studios? What was the what what said? Oh, you know what? Let's get this guy on a session. Or did you or did you say put me on a session? Did they come to you? Uh, no, you never say put me on a session. It's uh, first of all, I from the time I picked up the guitar from 11 years old. I had a guitar since I was eight years old. Couldn't get the hang of it. I played piano a little bit. Studied piano. Could not get the hang of it, but around 11 years old, my a good a friend of mine, a friend of mine, had a guitar, and he showed me two chords, and he showed me the song "Billy Boy," and somehow I got the hang of it by playing a song, and from that time on, I I took three lessons a week from 12 years old in New York City. I used to go three times a week in, after school and wow. take three lessons. Do you remember that music teacher's name? Sure. Oh, it was, it was my. Dear, dear mentor, Giovanni Vicari, who's an Italian teacher. I took one lesson, plectrum guitar. On Wednesday, I would take classical guitar. And on Friday, I would take uh, mandolin. That's, that's pretty... And, I, and, and every three, all three, uh, all three sessions I had to do, before I even picked up the guitar, solfeggio. Wow. So, that's I mean, that's, that's a lot of study for a 12-year-old. That's dedication at a very young age. Yeah, well, my father and mother, you know, they really supported me with that. They, they saw uh, that uh, they felt I had a talent for it. And I was, you know, I was, I did have a talent, as yeah, long as I practiced. Yeah. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. Or take, well, take, a, take a subway. Play. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you mentioned your parents. Let's, that's a, certainly where we're going to go next. What did your mother do? My mother played a little bit of piano, and uh, she used to take sometimes take me to my lessons in the early days, and uh, you know she would help me with my the theory and stuff. Uh, you know when I, when I would practice if I had any problems. Was she a homemaker? Did she have a she job? Was a ho- homemaker. Yeah. Homemaker. Now, what was her taste in music? What you know? What was it? Mom always put on when she was. Well, and you know, in those days, this was the fifties. So uh, you know, fifty-two, not fifty-two, about fifty-six, fifty-seven, and you know, in those days, they still listened to Sinatra, Tony Bennett, all the older standards. And you know, um, we still listen to those guys. And today. you know, that was my foundation. Between that and. I listened to Johnny Smith uh, uh, later, a little bit later on. West Montgomery, you know the, the the real icons of that era. Was was your mother's taste in in pop jazz singers an influence on you? Do you think? I, I wouldn't say pop jazz singers, uh, although they listened to Ella Fitzgerald. They they were aware of of some of the great singers, but so but did, it was more more popular big band singers. You know, uh, well, what's the one I'm thinking of? Uh, um, Thinking of the, uh, the the mother and daughter, Julie Gall Julie Garland. Oh, and uh, Liza Minnelli. Liza Minnelli. So Judy and Liza. Well, Judy and Liza, that that type of uh, uh, that type of pop singer, not necessarily straight ahead jazz like Ella would be. Although I did wind up listening to them, you know, after a while, especially when I got to Berkeley, they were like. Now, what about your father? What was what was his my, musical taste? My father liked big band stuff. My father was the one that really. Got me to want to be a studio musician. Really, what was he, his job? He used to he used to own three service stations in New York: one on Forty Second Street and Eleventh, one on Forty Third, and another one on Forty Second Street, which was a garage. And when I was eleven years old, he came home one night and he said, "Now, in those you have to understand, in those days, Tony Matola was a, a very famous guitarist. Al Kiola was coming up." 
Alvino Ray, those those type of guitar players. And he uh, got a call to pick up Tony Matola's car at one of the radio stations or TV stations. Because in those days, there was they would studio musicians would not only go from one date to another; they go they go to live TV shows where they played live. It was like a that end recording. Yeah. And he came home. He says, "Wow, John, you got to see this guy. Man, he, he carries two two guitars around. He's got a he's got a, a answering service, and they tell him, okay, go to this studio, go to that studio. And he's a studio musician. He doesn't play on stage. He actually did, but yeah, but he." But that, that's his main gig was that. So he was in an air-conditioned room playing guitar right. for a lot of time. Right. <laughs> and so that kind of stuck with me. And you know, you want you want to make your father proud of you and stuff. And at the same time, you have to understand that uh, Les Paul and Mary Ford were becoming very popular because of the sound-on-sound thing. Right. So I I never really studied how to record, but I had a mono tape recorder, and my uncle had a mono tape recorder. Gee. Bounce back and forth. And I took them. They both had speakers. There was no line in or out. You know? <laughs> so and I had a Stella guitar, and I would play into the microphone. Then I'd take the microphone from that, put it right by the speaker, in the, f- facing the round hole of the guitar, put the other one on record. So I was doing sound on sound. you know. And I liked, from that, from that time on, I loved recording. Like most of us. You, know, you do the same thing. Yeah, well. We're all part of the... The, the generation that did more than one thing to this day. To this day. <laughs> All right, so that's your parents' influence on you. And then uh, we would, uh, once again, returning to the idea, what was your first toe into the studio? What brought you into the studio world? Actually, I was in the studio from 13 years old. But I was, uh, I was re- my father recorded me playing some songs I wrote with actually professional studio musicians, like it was the trio. And then from there I went to another, I did another date at, at Mirror Sound, Mirror Sound in the Hotel America by by Bob Goldman, the owner of it. He's since passed, of course. And uh, I walked into the studio when when uh, Bobby Darren was walking out. He had to hit, he had to hit... Uh, Splish Splash in the 50s, right? Not Splish Splash, it was... Uh, Mac the knife. Mac the knife. And here I'm, I'm, I'm like saying, I can't believe that's Bobby Darren walking out of here. And I worked with uh, I, the drummer was Gary Chester Senior. Joe Mack was the bass player. These are all first call studio musicians in that day. In in the late mid, this was the early '60s. So what was what am I trying to say? But my first, my first job as a studio musician that was really me as the artist first jobs as studio musicians when I actually when I went to Boston I was playing some dates at at Ace Recording so you brought that experience down to to New York with you and continued yeah. it yeah and when I, I when I when I left Boston I had a band and I was actually I was, had a band and I was playing with the Three Degrees at the time and uh, when I decided to go you know there wasn't much happening in Boston, studio-wise. So I, I, I moved back to New York. And little by little, it took about three, four years. I moved back to New York in 67. And by 71, I was making, between doing the Off-Broadway show, I was doing maybe three, four record dates a week. Wow, that's great. Yeah, it was, it was a, I moved pretty fast. That's excellent. Yeah. 
So now let's talk about what was your big break? What was the moment you said, wow, I am established. People, I feel now I feel respected mm-hmm. and uh, people acknowledge my talent. I, I am, I'm, I'm here. What was, what was your big break? What was that moment? You know, there's a couple of, you know, you can't really say it's one moment because around 71, 72, I, I played on one or two hits. One of the first hit I played on was uh, Everybody Plays the Fool. The original Everybody Plays the Fool. So I would say at that point I'm starting to get established as a recognized guitar player, but I wasn't the first call. But, hey, you got to hear this guy, John Trope. You know, if you can't get Eric Gale, you can't get Spinoza. Try Trope. He's, you know, he's in that same vein. By 73, I would say one of my, one of my big breaks is I go on, a, I, go on a, a, I was doing a demo down at Green Street Recording. It was a Friday afternoon, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and a big storm came. And I would never do this, but it was such a bad storm, and I was living in South Hackensack, I almost, didn't, I almost canceled the date. So I go on the date anyway, and it's for Diodato, Amir Diodato. And it's Astrid Gilberto was the artist. Wow. So lucky I made this date because I do the date. He likes the way I play. A week later, I get a call from Creed Taylor's office. We'd like to book you for a week at, uh, at uh, what's the name of the studio? In Englewood Cliff, that famous jazz studio. And uh, Rudy Van Gelder's famous studio. So I did it. And that was the Diodato 2001 album. About a month and a half later, I'm driving into my mother's house, and I had a big solo on it. And I'm, I'm, I never heard the horns on it, never heard the finished product. I said, wow, man, that sounds, that sounds like some of my licks. It was me. And within a week, it was number one. Wow. So, and then from there on, I, I started to tour with him. At all every weekend, with all studio musicians, the Brecker Brothers, uh, Billy Cobham, you know, we had uh, uh, a whole two years in a row of, of of doing big concerts. Then we opened the show for Three Dog Night. So I would say that really launched me, as more more than even more than just a studio musician, because then I got a record deal with TK Records, did three albums in the seventies. First album did very very well. I, I have those records and I enjoy them. Thank you. All right, so uh, let's let's talk about a couple of your credits besides Diodato. Did you play with Al Green? Is that correct? I've played with him more than once. Yeah. More than once. Is there any other uh, would you would you call a Southern soul artist that you played with? Southern soul. That's a good question, Doctor John. Doctor John. Did a couple albums with him. Played played on the road with him too. Uh, Aretha Franklin, anybody like that? I, I I've been in the studio with Aretha. Uh, so, so Roberta, yes. <laughs> R- Roberta Flack, you know, did a bunch of records with her. Uh, Tony Sylvester, uh, James Brown. Wow, what, what uh, was it like? Did you did you actually never met James Brown? You just did the sessions. Just did the sessions. Wow, that's great. It was either David Matthews or uh, it, uh, I forget the the baritone player that. Was his kind of his music director, and we would go in the studio, and but never met him. I would have loved to met him, but wow. because this is the Nashville Soul Music Podcast, we like to talk about the Southern the music Southern connection. Sure, absolutely. Well, I mean, I play with Steve Cropper now. 
<laughs> for 12, 13 yeah, years. Yeah, pretty southern. Yes, that's southern. <laughs> and uh, who else? What's on your record player at home right now? What were you listening to before you got on the airplane to come here? Well, oddly enough, what I was listening to for the last four or five months was my new record because I was mixing it. And uh, What's the name of your it. new record? The new record's called Gotcha Rhythm Right Here. And it's uh, co-produced by myself and my Hammond B3 keyboard player, Chris Palmero. And it's got, you know, it's a lot, it's very heavy on the horns. There's about seven drummers on it, seven different drummers on it, 13 cuts. Steve, from Steve Gadd to Keith Carlock to uh, Lee Finkelstein. And Chris Palmero plays drums too. Um, Will Lee's on it. Zev Katz is on it, a uh, whole bunch of guys. So, a bunch of nobodies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they have a little future. Randy Brecker, Lou Soloff. Those guys. Uh, Glenn Drews. I'm very proud of it. It's a good record. So, uh, where can they find that record? Is it on iTunes? Can you find it at JohnTrope.com? JohnTrope.com will have uh, you know, a link to go to either download or to buy the actual CD. That's crazy. Well, thanks for being on the program, John. Well, it's a pleasure. It's, it's awesome to have you, and uh, it's a pleasure to work with you. And I'll see you on the next gig. I'll see you on the next gig. <laughs> thanks. Right. This is Cowboy Keith Thompson. You've been listening to the Nashville Soul Music Podcast. Please subscribe and visit NashvilleSoulMusic.com. <laughs>